I'm going to invite you to pray with me now as we come to God's word. And as we prepare for that, you might like to open your Bibles at Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be reading the first 12 verses in just a moment's time. And then we will have a look at what God wants to say to us this morning. But let's pray. Loving Father, we thank you that you are present with us and we thank you that we stand here on the first Sunday of this new year, barely into this new year, three days in, and with all of the possibilities, with all of the expectations that we have about this coming year, but also there are going to be challenges. So, Heavenly Father, as we stand here at this first Sunday of 2021 we want to acknowledge your greatness we want to say thank you for your love for your care for your blessing in bringing us through 2020 and bringing us to this point and we know with confidence as we have been reminded through this service already we know with confidence that we can come into 2021 with whatever it holds for us and we can do it with great confidence and faith and trust in you But Father, you have a role for each one of us to play in 2021. You have a plan and a purpose for every life that is present here. You have a plan and a purpose for every life on this planet. But Lord, you're concerned to speak into our hearts this morning at this point and help us to to catch something afresh of that plan and purpose that you have for us as individuals but also as a church. And so I pray... Father, that by your Holy Spirit you will speak into our hearts today as we look at your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in Easter of 1983, some of you won't remember that because you weren't born then, but back in Easter of 1983, we were sitting in college and one of the lecturers was giving us a brief message just to prepare our own hearts for that coming Easter season. And he actually built his message, obviously around God's word, but also around an article that he had read concerning the then movie that was the big movie of its time back in 1983, E.T. Anyone remember E.T., the extraterrestrial? So that was the big movie. In fact, I had seen it probably about a month before Karen and I had gone to see it like everybody else and enjoyed the movie. But as we sat there this particular Easter and as the speaker began to unpack it, he referred to an article by Philip Adams. Philip Adams is a well-known Australian journalist and media personality. He is also a very committed and very strong atheist. Interestingly, he grew up in a Christian family, but later in life turned his back on that. But he wrote an article at that time, back in Easter of 1983, about E.T. And he pointed out, and I sat there, and as the speaker read out some of the points that Adams was making, he pointed out the Christian themes that came through E.T. A person who comes from another place, who is a visitor to our planet, who gathers a, a group of people around him who love him and care for him and then ultimately dies. hope if you haven't seen E.T. that I'm... Well, it's a spoiler, okay? He dies. If you haven't seen the movie, he dies. But it's not all bad news because then he comes back to life again. And the point that Philip Adams was making in his article was this. The point he was making was that many Christians missed the Christological themes right the way through E.T. And I sat there and my jaw was kind of like, how did I miss that? How 
had a, I'd seen ET. I thought it was a great movie. But here I am sitting, listening to a speaker talking about it, and I thought I missed it. How did I miss it? How did I miss it? So I was thankful for that message that particular day because it taught me to look carefully at what's happening in our culture and what's happening around about us. And it also taught me the valuable principle that if we don't have eyes that are wide open, we can miss things. Sometimes we can miss things because we become apathetic. And we'll see that this morning from the passage that we're going to look at. But the truth is this, that we can miss things if we don't consciously open our eyes to what's going on around about us. I want to take you to Matthew chapter 2 because we have in this section, Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 to 12, this is the visit of the wise men. And you are no doubt thinking, I've called the message this morning, Agents of Redemption. About now you're thinking to yourself, why are we looking at Matthew chapter 2 and the visit of the wise men? We've got through Christmas, it's 2021. Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Because today, historically, is regarded in the Christian church as Epiphany Sunday. Whether it's uh, the Catholic Church or the Protestant Church, many churches around the world today will celebrate what we call Epiphany Sunday. Epiphany, the Feast of Epiphany, actually occurs on the 6th of January. And so they normally take the Sunday that is closest to that to celebrate this. Now, what is Epiphany Sunday? Well, it's related to a Greek word that means to appear. And that word is related, or a related word is, occurs in the text here in Matthew chapter 2, verse 7. Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time the star appeared, the Epiphany. And so Epiphany Sunday celebrates, or the Feast of Epiphany celebrates the visit of the wise men and the appearance of Christ to the Gentile world. And we made reference to that during our Christmas celebrations. But I thought it would be a good thing this morning for us to focus on this because Epiphany Sunday actually represents the culmination of the Advent Christmas period. And that's why we're looking at it this morning. And I've called this message Agents of Redemption. But as we read the passage, here's what I want you to note. I want you to note that although there are people here who cotton on to what is going on and what God is doing in the world, there are some people who completely miss it. Let's have a look at the text, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search for the child, and when you have found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. And having heard the king, they went their way, and lo, the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they came into the house and saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Opening their treasures... 
They presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their own country by another way. I want to talk to you about the language of God for a moment. I want to talk about the purposes of God for a moment. And so let's just consider this passage in the light of the language and purposes of God. And as we think in terms of the language of God or the way in which God speaks, because God's speaking is written all over this passage that we've just looked at, I want you to see that God speaks to us in ways that we can understand. That is so clear in this text. God speaks to us in ways that we can understand. Have a look at who the people are. We see in verse 1 we are introduced to the Magi. They come from the east. Who are the Magi? The simple answer is that they are pagan astrologers. They were men from the east who were learned in the art of astrology. Astrology, as we know, is used as a means of predicting the future. So these were men who studied the stars. They studied ancient texts. They made predictions. At its worst, it could have delved into magical arts. At its best, it was regarded in those days as something of a scientific discipline. Now, we live in the 21st century. We know that, or if you've done any reading on astrology, you will know that it has no scientific basis whatsoever. But back then it was different. And so these men would have been regarded as learned men. The best astrologers came from the East. But here's the interesting thing. The Old Testament condemned astrology. So here you have some men, pagan astrologers, magi, which gives us our English word magic, whom God speaks to. And how does God speak to them? Did you notice that in the text? How did he speak to them? Through a sign, through a star that appeared in the sky. God spoke to these Gentiles, these pagan Gentiles, in a way that they could understand. And so they arrive in Jerusalem, these men from the east, and they announce that they have seen this sign in the east. If you look at verse 2, we saw his star in the east. Actually, a better way of translating that is that we saw his star in its rising. So they have witnessed an astrological sign take place in the heavens. There's been a lot of speculation in history about what that sign was. There have been a few arguments put forward, but we can't actually be 100% sure what the particular sign was. What we do know is the interpretation that was attached to that in those days. And so for many people, who adhered to this kind of belief system, to see an astronomical sign in the, in the stars or in the sky that was significant or unusual, all, ordinarily would be, temp, would be trans, or interpreted as either a great ruler was about to fall or die or another great ruler was about to come forth. So they come into Jerusalem having seen this sign and they make this announcement And the announcement that they make is, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Because the term king of the Jews is associated, obviously, with Jewish teaching and preaching. And yet, these guys know enough of what's going on, or enough of what has been said amongst the Jews, that there is one who has been promised to come forth as king of the Jews. It's a messianic title. So God has clearly spoken to these guys in an unusual way, 
but he's spoken in language that they understand, but they have also picked up on the widespread held belief at that point that a king would arise in Judea who would bring peace to the whole world. That belief was current, not just among the Jews. And so they picked up on that and they see this sign and they connect the two thoughts. They come to Jerusalem seeking this one who was born the king, the king of the Jews. Clearly, they are looking for one whom the Jews would call the Messiah. God has spoken to them in language they understand. But notice this. I want you to see this in the text. The reason God does this is because his purpose is to redeem people. Have a look at what happens after this announcement. We have that interesting little phrase that when Herod the king heard it, this is Herod the Great, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. We'll come back to that in a moment. What does Herod do? He gathers all the chief religious leaders, the the priests, the Sanhedrin. They are gathered together, and the question he puts to them is, you men are learned in the Scriptures. Tell me this. What do the prophecies say? Where is the Messiah to be born? Tell me that. And they come back with the answer. They know the location, and they know the chapter and verse. First thing they say is, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. You read it there in the text. But they know the chapter and verse. They then quote Micah 5.2. This is what the prophet Micah said, that out of Bethlehem would come one who would rule. Do you notice the irony of this? Here are these men learned in the scriptures. They know the location of Messiah's birth. They know the chapter and the verse. But they don't head off to Bethlehem. Doesn't that strike you as interesting? Why is that? Here you have some pagan astrologers who have come to Jerusalem. They've seen a sign in the sky and they are seeking the king of the Jews. And yet there is a group of people around Herod, advisors, who know the location of Messiah's birth and they know the chapter and the verse, but they do not head off down to Bethlehem to see for themselves. As one writer described it, there is incredible apathy amongst these religious leaders. They are not moved enough to go and check this out for themselves. They ignore what is taking place. They ignore the fact that the Magi have come in with an announcement and they do nothing. But there's one person apart from the Magi who takes it seriously. We all know who that is, don't we? His name's Herod. And the reason we know from the historical record here in Matthew's Gospel, the reason he takes it seriously is because he was threatened. He did not want a rival to his throne. And so the reason why he goes through the negotiations with the Magi is in order to determine around about the time that this child was born. Why? Because Herod had already hatched a plot in his heart. He disguised it as worship, but he'd already hatched a plot in his heart that was going to destroy all of those young men or young babies in that age range in the town of Bethlehem. He hatches the plot. But the Magi make their way to Bethlehem. And here is the significant thing. The religious leaders do nothing. They are apathetic. But the Magi come and we read in verse 11, they came into the house and they saw the child with Mary and his mother, um, with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Now, there is discussion about whether this is worship of him as God, or whether it's just homage that they pay to a king. Either way, it's going to work. But according to what they understand, according to what they see, according to the miraculous way in which they have been guided to this place, 
It issues itself in worship and they bring their gifts to this newborn king. But here's the thing I want you to see. God speaks all the way through this passage to people. He speaks firstly to the Magi in language that they can understand. He begins where they are at. He speaks to Joseph. If you go back to the latter stages of chapter 1, he speaks to, to Joseph through an angel about the birth of Jesus. He's speaking to Herod and to the religious leaders through the scriptures. God is speaking at every point in language that people can understand. God begins where we are at. And he speaks to us. And it's surprising. Here is God speaking to the Magi in language they can understand. They are involved in practices that are condemned in his own word. And yet God, in his grace and mercy, speaks to these men and they come and worship the Messiah. And yet the people with all the information, with all of the location, with all of the scriptures, do nothing. They're apathetic. But why does God do this? Why does God speak in language that we can understand? Because God's purpose is to redeem all people. And that's what Matthew wants us to understand in this passage. He wants us to understand that the gospel is not just for the Jew, it is for the whole world. And God sticks to his purpose and to his program. Romans tells us, Paul tells us in Romans what? That the gospel was revealed first to who? The Jews and then the Gentiles. And to whom is the Christ revealed first to? To Jewish shepherds, to the Jew first and then to Gentiles. God's purpose is for the whole world to know his son, to be redeemed by his son. So taking those two truths, that God speaks to us in language that we can understand and that his purpose is to redeem the whole world, let's apply them to ourselves. And I want you to consider this from this perspective this morning. This is the perspective I want you to look at it from. I want you to consider it from the perspective of the role that God has for you to play as an agent of redemption in our society this year. I want you to think this through carefully as we move into applying this passage to our own hearts this morning. I want you to consider how you can apply these two truths, speaking in language that people will understand and that God's purpose is to redeem the whole world. I want you to look at it from the perspective of what it means for your role in redeeming people, culture and civilization. Now, you may remember a couple of weeks back as we headed into Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, that I talked to you about the, the impact that Christ has made on not just lives but on culture and civilization. No one has impacted the world like Jesus. What I want to do is to take that thought a step further and apply it to us. How can we, as agents of redemption, impact the lives of people, our culture and our civilization? And what might God be saying to you and to me in 2021 as we come into this new year? How or what role does God have for you? Here's the first thing I want to say to you. Take a look at what is happening around you. Take a look at what is happening happening around you. I want you to go back to Matthew chapter 2, verse 3. Note what the text says. When Herod the king heard it, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now, you've heard this many times, I'm sure. You've heard messages on the Magi before. The reason why the Jewish people, and specifically the citizens of Jerusalem, were troubled was because Herod the Great was a tyrant. At this point in his history, he had already killed his favourite wife and two of his sons because he was threatened that they were trying to undermine him and overthrow his throne. 
an incredibly threatened individual. It was actually said by the people of Herod's day that it was better to be Herod's pig than be his son. It was safer. He was ruthless. His history was bloody. In fact, some people have debated, okay, how come in Matthew chapter 2, the historical records outside the Gospels don't mention the slaughter of the innocents in Bethlehem? And the answer, and I think it's the correct answer, is because that was just typical of Herod. It barely rated on the scale in terms of the kinds of things that this man was capable of. But you see, the city is aware at this point. Herod is troubled. There's a new threat to the throne, and therefore the whole city is troubled. They look around the city, they see the arrival of the Magi, they are aware of what is going on, and they are concerned. They are troubled. Folks, in 2021, take a look at what is happening around you in your culture, in your city, in in our nation, in our city, in our country, in our world. Take a look at what is happening around you in the coming year because I can assure you that there is plenty to trouble you if you are a God-fearing person there is plenty to trouble you some of you I know are aware of proposed laws in Victoria now I'm raising this this morning because folks this is where our culture is at the Victorian government has proposed legislation which they call anti-conversion therapy for gay people or people who are struggling with their gender identity. Now, if that isn't enough, this is particularly troubling legislation because the legislation they are proposing would include bringing a court case against a pastor or a Christian who prays for a person. I'll give you the example. A person could come into our church. They could come to me at the end of the service and say, Pastor Rob, I am struggling with this whole issue of gender identity, uh, with the fact that I think I might be gay or I might be a woman or whatever. Would you pray for me? And I can pray for them after the service. And if they leave that service, this is the legislation, if they leave that service and they are troubled by what I did, they can bring a lawsuit against me because I've broken anti-conversion therapy laws. Now, you might say, well, it's happening in Victoria. It doesn't worry us. No, the legislation includes that if it's a Victorian person in our state, so that hypothetical I just gave you was a Victorian person, they can go back to their state and they can bring the charge against me as a person living in Western Australia. I hope that that troubles you. There is plenty going on in our community that ought to trouble us. But what is the enemy that we have to fight? It's apathy. The religious scholars were apathetic. There was stuff of significant and momentous import happening around them in their community and they did nothing. They had the location, they had the chapter and verse, but they do nothing. They're apathetic. A friend of mine, Peter Christofides, he, does, he told this story so much better. He uh, is a pastor He also comes from a Greek background. So when Peter talks about the Greek, it's always wonderful to hear. And I heard him preach recently. And he said that our word apathy comes from the Greek word apathos. And the A is a negative in front of the word. That means it negates it. Pathos means passion. So apathos means no passion. He said apathos is Greek for 
And I, he did us so much better than me because he's got the Greek uh, look about him and all of that. But that's what apathy is. You don't care. And the scholars of the days in which Jesus was born didn't care to do anything or to check it out. And our greatest enemy in 2021, folks, is apathy. That we can look around our community and go, it is our greatest enemy. Take a look at what is happening around you. Let me share with you a little bit of my own thinking. It's kind of interesting how God brings these things together. So let me say this to you about our culture. This is why I want you to open your eyes. As our culture drifts further from God and biblical principles, creativity declines. It declines. I was having this conversation with Karen recently. We were just chatting about it. We play a bit of a game. We like to watch movies from time to time. We play a bit of a game. If the movie is interesting and engaging, we get into it and we, we watch it. But if the movie after about 20 minutes or so is predictable, we sit there and start to predict what the next line will be in the movie. Now, this works really well. It doesn't work well when I'm watching Star Trek movies because Karen comes out. I, I normally turn to her and say, look, it might be good if um, you went to bed rather than start up with the comments now because I want to enjoy this movie. That works best. But we sit there and we play this game where we start to predict what is being said. Have you noticed just how formulaic so much of the creativity is, particularly in the movie world? I mean, look at it. In the music world, people look the same, they talk the same, they sound the same. We were talking about this the other night. As I said in the movies, what have you got in movies these days? You have the standard gay couple. Have you noticed this? The standard gay couple. And who is the only person who understands about love and romance in the movies? Gay couples. Have you noticed that? If you haven't, open your eyes. Some of you are going to be going home and hitting Netflix this afternoon. The writing is often poor. The lines are predictable. If it's one of those blood and guts ones, there's lots of blood and gore and killing. And usually the hero, have you noticed this, is tortured by his past. But somehow in rescuing the person or individual's concern, he finds redemption sometimes. I've just written you the script for probably 20 or 30 movies that are on Netflix, if not more right now. Have you noticed that? Not Open your eyes to what's going on. But my point is this. As we move further away from God and biblical principles, creativity declines. Second point I want to make. As our culture drifts further from God and biblical principles, we become more inhuman. We become more inhuman. We claim to be an enlightened society, but we in fact are becoming more and more inhuman. I'm going to just give you the briefest stats from an, an article that was written recently put out by the White Ribbon people on domestic violence. Now, we live in this so-called enlightened age where we have liberated people sexually and have said to people that really whatever you want to be is what you can be, liberated people sexually. Uh, you can do whatever you like, when you like, with who you like, and we are enlightened and we're moving forward and we've had such a strong emphasis on men looking after women, haven't we? We've had that for the last several years, and we should. But, folks, here is what our enlightened culture is producing. So a recent survey was done on a generation of young men between the ages of 18 and 34-year-olds. Here we are in our enlightened society sexually, and here is what our enlightened young men between the ages of 18 and 34 say in the community. They say that 42% of them 
think that hitting, punching or restraining a woman is not domestic violence. 42%. Did you get that? In our enlightened society. Why? Because we're getting further away from God and his principles. We're not enlightened. 46% of the same age group think that non-consensual sexual activity is not domestic violence. Now, we've been fighting this battle for decades. We've been saying to young men that these things are wrong, and yet we're not making any impact. Why? Because our enlightened society has drifted from God's principles and from God himself. You drift away from God's principles, you start to liberate people sexually, and it's on for young and old, and a culture declines. I read to you a quote a few weeks back about the Roman Empire. Every culture, now hear this, every culture that not only endorses but actively promotes the homosexual lifestyle has declined and failed. I said to you two weeks ago, and I'm saying it to you again, our culture is on the brink of collapse. As a culture drifts further from God and biblical principles, we become more inhuman. We see it in the creative world. Think of the art world. Art is supposed to reflect beauty and truth. I remember reading 10 years ago, having just read Charles Colson's fantastic book, How Then or How Now Shall We Live? And he talked about the ways in which art should reflect beauty and it should reflect truth. And then as having just finished that book, uh, a few years later, I'm reading through an article about a guy in Brisbane who was an artist who was given a $10,000 grant by the Queensland government to make his vomitscapes. What were his vomitscapes? It consisted of him drinking loads of milk and then vomiting it out on the pavement for people to look at, and that was his artwork. Now, that's just one example. Art is supposed to reflect beauty and truth. When we get away from God and his principles, we no longer reflect beauty and truth. Folks, that's a tragedy that a person would think that somehow that qualifies as art. You want to know what's going on in your culture? Have a look at what's happening in the arts. The movies, the books, the poetry, the artwork. So Karen and I were having this discussion and I was pleased to discover that Francis Schaeffer agreed with me. I read this afterwards, and he's speaking about the Roman Empire. He said that apathy was the chief mark of the late Roman Empire. And one of the ways the apathy showed itself was in a lack of creativity in the arts. He said the elite abandoned their intellectual pursuits for social life. Officially sponsored art was decadent, and music was increasingly bombastic. Because of the general apathy and its results, and because of oppressive control, few thought the old civilization worth saving. Folks, he wrote that in 1976. How prophetic is that? As we sit here in 2021, nearly 50 years after he wrote that. So that's the bad news. Here's the good news. My encouragement to you is become an agent of redemption. I want to finish on a positive note. Become an agent of redemption. The Magi become agents of redemption. They take the great news about the king of the Jews and his birth back to their own people. Having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their own country by another way. That was God's purpose. That It was unmistakable why God took them back. 
He brought them there all that way so he could take them back and they could start to declare to the Gentile world and start to prepare them for the message of the gospel, that the king of the Jews has been born. Folks, we are agents of redemption. Be an agent of redemption in 2021. Be an agent of redemption with the people you know. Speak to them or learn to speak to them in a language that they understand. Begin where they are at. It's all through our culture. The themes of redemption are all through our culture. Why? Because our culture can't get away from it. Don't judge me. Okay, I'm going to use an illustration from Star Trek. Don't judge me. Star Trek was written by an avowed atheist, Gene Roddenberry, who was raised in a Southern Baptist home. You watch Star Trek II, The Death of Spock. Here's a spoiler alert. The title tells you what happens. Mr. Spock dies giving his life for everybody else. And he makes this statement. Don't tell me you can't hear the gospel in this. As he's there dying, he says, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the one. I will always be your everlasting friend. Can you see the gospel in that? The one who died for us, who said, I call you friends. It's all through our society. It's in people's hearts. People have worldviews that are based on atheistic presuppositions that there is no God, and yet they still talk about mercy and compassion. They can't explain it. Why? It's because God put it in their heart. Their worldview, they don't actually live consistent with their worldview. Understand that and begin to talk to people where they're at. They can't get away from it. Build a bridge. Don't condemn. Be an agent of redemption in our culture. Live counterculturally. Folks, we can all do this one. We can all model a better way. Going back to that domestic violence stats above, I was talking to a good friend this week. He was saying, I'm pretty sure I got this right, that here in Australia now we now have more people living together than are married. We've never been in that position before. How do we address that? Well, we can hold up placards that domestic violence is wrong and we can speak into it. And there are certain things we can do. But folks, do you know the best way we can counter that? is to live and model something differently. Model to people what a Christ-like marriage looks like. Can you get that? What is it to stay devoted to one man or one woman for the whole of your life? Model Christian marriage. Karen and I are hoping to address that with the introduction of a marriage course here uh, this year that we're going to actually take part in and then bring it to the church. But folks, we can model Christian marriage. We can model redeemed sexuality. In a world, to quote one author, is going to hell in a hat box. We can model redeemed sexuality. Christian young people. I know one of the greatest struggles that we're having in the church these days is with premarital sex amongst our Christian young people. Let's be honest about it. It is an increasing problem. It's been going on for 10, 15 years, just getting worse and worse. Make a decision. Make a decision, young people, in 2021 to live counter to the culture. To model people to people what it is to bring your sexuality under the authority and control of Christ. How else can you redeem the culture? Become a reader. I tell you what, I am so over. I am so over these articles that go up on Facebook that say it's a three-minute read. In three minutes, you will be the full bottle and an expert on this topic and you will be able to go to your keyboard and become a warrior and fight for that. 
Folks, that's not how you do it. Read. Become a reader. Read both sides. There's a novel thought. Read both sides of the argument. And then weigh it up biblically. Read widely and read deeply. I'll tell you now that the devil wants to dumb us down. And one of the ways he does it is he makes us illiterate. And I'm not just talking about whether you can read or write or not, but that we just don't read. We don't read deeply. We don't read widely. Become an agent of redemption in the civilization. Here's my appeal. Use the gifts that God has given you to make a difference. Do you know who preserved the Christian heritage and culture and literature out of the Middle Ages? Do you know who it was? It was the monks and the monasteries. They preserved the culture and brought it through that difficult period. The Dark Ages is not as dark as some people say, but they preserved the culture. Folks, all of you have gifts and abilities that God has given you that you can use to make a difference. Some of you have gifts of mercy and compassion. Maybe God wants to use you amongst the poor or in the medical world or as a medical missionary or or to work amongst the homeless with those gifts of mercy and compassion. Some of you have gifts of justice or hearts for justice. We need Christian lawyers. We need Christian politicians. We need local government members who are Christians who can make a difference. People who are prepared to stand up and fight against the prostitution of young women in other countries and the slave trade that's going on there and in our own country. People who will stand up and champion the rights of the unborn and the elderly. All of this is under threat. Some of you have gifts of knowledge. We need the Christian scientists. We need the Christian financiers. Some of you, I said this a year or so ago, Some of you have the ability, God has given you the ability to make money. We need those gifts that you can use them in some way that God wants to use you. And we need you to use your gifts of creativity. We need to see our culture preserved and expanded through your gifts of music, your gifts of singing, through the film world, through books, through art, through architecture. Ask yourself, here are two questions. If you don't think of anything else this morning, write these two questions down. Go home and ask yourself, God, what do you want me to do in 2021? What do you want me to do in 2021? And secondly, how can I use my gifts and abilities to redeem people, culture and civilization? God, what do you want me to do? And how can I use my gifts and abilities to redeem people, culture and civilization? I mean this sincerely. I wonder as I look out on this congregation how many Abraham Lincolns or Michelangelo's or C. Everett Coops or Scott Morrison's or C.S. Lewis's might we have sitting in our own congregation right now, gifts that are waiting to be opened and unpacked for God to use you to redeem people, the culture and the civilization. Let me close with this comment by Charles Colson. This is really to wake us up out of our apathy and get us out into our community. He says, we need prayer, Bible study, worship, fellowship and witnessing. But if we focus exclusively on those disciplines, and if in the process we ignore our responsibility to redeem the surrounding culture, our Christianity will remain privatised and marginalised. How will you live in 2021?